little trivia question for you. What do the following flowers all have in common? Let's see if you know your, your uh, whatever the flower of science is. Verbenas, lavender, bellflowers, dwarf iris, balloon flower, lily of the Nile, bee orchid, bell heather, wild hyacinth, and cone flower. What do they have in common? What do you think? Poisonous? Oh, who said purple? Oh, look at that. And, and purple right there. Okay, there were several purples. Yes, there are, 62, there are 62 known flowers that are all purple. Those are 10 of them. But flowers were also made by God in white, yellow, peach, orange, red, blue, green, pink, and yes, even black, the black velvet petunia. Now, obviously, colors of flowers are mixed and shaded with infinite variations. It is uh, quite literally impossible to count the number of variations of flower colors. The amaryllis flower has 500 different varieties, all with slightly different coloring. So you really get into the realm of the infinite here. Many studies have shown that various colors of flowers actually affect your mood in different ways. And of course, florists count on this. They want, uh, they want you to understand that. When we were in Texas, my favorite flower was the state flower, the, the Texas blue bonnet. It's a tall blue flower, and in the spring for a couple of months, it just blooms all over the place. And since it's illegal in Texas to pick blue bonnets, although everybody does it, um, these hillsides would be filled with the, this just blue. It's just stunning. And you could pull over to the side of the road, and I, I've done it, and just walk into the middle of this and just sit down, and it, and it smells so good and just blue everywhere. But what if all flowers came in black and white? Or maybe a few exciting shades of gray along the way. It just, it wouldn't be the same. And so as we've been examining blossoming as God's child in this session, I'd like to think about color. That aspect of a flower which gives visual delight, which is a thrill for us to look at, which brightens up the room. And the reason for this is that so many believers in Christ, I think, walk through life very much in black and white. Kind of, sort of, being useful for kingdom things but never really maximizing their time and talent to aggressively serve the Lord. They sort of try to live in a Christian marriage, but aren't necessarily all in. Husbands sort of try to love their wives. Wives sort of try to truly honor their husbands. They sort of try to raise children who know the gospel, but they're not intentional about it. They'll take them to church on Sunday after having shown their children a movie on Saturday night with inappropriate sexual images in it, and they'll do things that contradict what they say they believe. Now, they try to sort of resist worldliness, but more often than not, their lives resemble their neighbors more than they do that of a Christian or that of Christ. They resemble their neighbors in how they behave, how they dress, how they speak, how they prioritize their time. And so you have a, a Christian who is a flower, yes, but really in black and white, not in color. And so today I'd like to talk about this evening, blossoming with beautiful color as a child of God. I'm going to define this a little more clearly for you soon, but to get a feel for the servant of Christ who's in full bloom and adding color and delight to their family, to their church, to the world for the sake of Christ, let's look at at really one of the most famous parables, maybe one that you're the most familiar with, most famously called the parable of the talents. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, and we'll begin in verse 14. Now, I should say up front that you should not confuse this parable with the parable of the minas. That's in Luke 19. They're very similar, 
but they're in a completely different set of circumstances, different contexts, and two different sets of details. So those are not the same story. Uh, Jesus used a story that had similar elements to it, but those are two different times. So this is the parable of the talents. And this is the story of a wealthy master going away on a long journey. Verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. So verse 14, he says, it will be like. What is it? Well, he's referring back to verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. Jesus is in the middle of preaching what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse, a long sermon given by Jesus on the Mount of Olives just before his arrest. And his subject is the end times. And we'll come to that shortly But Matthew 24 and 25 records this sermon. So what we're hearing here is the second to last lesson in this sermon. Jesus often preached sermons that had multiple topics to them. So I don't mind doing the same thing. If he can do it, then I can do it too. But the story commences with this wealthy man going away and he gives his servants the money he wants them to invest in on his behalf. And as we mentioned earlier, in the ancient world, you can't set a precise travel itinerary. The master might be gone for a week. He might be gone for five years. And they never knew. And so his return would be a surprise to all of them. So he gives them each different amounts of money. Now, it's very interesting. Jesus uses the the term talent. That's not a measure of currency. That's a weight. That's a, a, a weight of metal. So you can have a talent of gold, or you can have a talent of silver, or you can have a talent of copper. We don't know what kind of talent Jesus was referring to. We do know that a talent would be a considerable sum of money. And so the master in this story says, gives to each according to their ability. The the more capable received more, the less capable received less. So what did the first servant do? Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. The first servant has no hesitation at all. You see the term at once. He went immediately. He traded with those talents. He put them to work in some way to double his original investment. What did the second servant do? Verse 17. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Now you don't get quite the same sense of diligence. You don't have the at once. It's more of a neutral report. But he also invested the money wisely and doubled his investment. And then the infamous third servant. Verse 18, but he who received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Remember we talked about buried treasure? Well, this is, a, this is an occasion where he doesn't want to lose it, so he buries it. Now, his story, this third servant, is introduced with a, what's called a contrastive conjunction, but meaning he's in a different category than the other two servants. We shouldn't compare them in the same category. They're in the different category. That will be very important later. And now the day of reckoning arrives, verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And we could divide the rest of the parable now very simply into the three evaluations that the master is going to give. And this this doesn't take long. It's very simple. The first evaluation, verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Now, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
English translations in verse 1 supply the word done. But really, in Greek, it's just well. And it's, a, it's what's called an exclamation. We would say bravo, amazing. And so it's, it's a big deal. He just gives this exclamation of happiness, an interjection that says, wow, you've done great. You are now a good and faithful servant. He's characterized that way. The master says to the servant, you've been faithful over a little. This is very interesting because the five talents given to him originally would be a great sum of money. And so he calls that a little, meaning that the master is extremely wealthy. And he says, I will set you over much. This has the idea of responsibility, of ruling something. And so he tells him, enter into the joy of your master. The servant's place of favor is now fully established. He will from now on be in the master's good graces. Then you have a second evaluation. It's very similar. Verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Basically, that evaluation is identical to the one who had five. Even though the one with two talents didn't produce as big a return, he produced the same percentage. And so he gets a reward as well. And then you have the third evaluation in verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So this guy starts off qualifying his failure. He's coming down with excuses and by the way, with a backhanded cut down of the master. You're a hard man. That's not something you say to somebody who has power over you. And as this servant is about to find out, this is actually true. But if he did know he was a hard man, why didn't he do something faithful with the one talent that he did receive? He says that he says that you make a profit from work you didn't personally do yourself. And so you have an eye for business. You know how to delegate. So I was afraid of you. Well, again, if that's the case, if the master expects a return from work he didn't do, then why didn't he provide some sort of harvest for that investment? But the servant did the opposite of what he should have done. Verse 25, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. So he acted in fear that he might lose that one talent. So he hedged his bet, kept it hidden so he could just give it back. And the master is not happy. And his tone changes completely, totally different. Verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. The servant already knew that the master reaps where he does not sows, sow, and he gathers where he has not scattered seed. But if the servant really believed that, if he honestly believed that, he would have acted differently. He should have gone to the bankers, is what the master says, that would be a more conservative investment, but at least he would have some sort of interest, some sort of yield. And so the master reveals that the servant is all words. He's all show of respect, but in actuality, he has a disdain for the master. He has a hatred for the master, and and it comes out here. He's unfaithful with the master's money, and he even gets this, this disrespectful term, here, you have what is yours. In other words, take it. 
And so there's a sense of, of disdain and disrespect. And so the master gives an object lesson. Verse 28, So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, the lesson usually applied to this parable is where we actually get our word of the our use of the word talent, like a gift or an ability. That's a word we still use uh, today. And the lesson is often taught, whatever talents the Lord gives you are to be used for him. And if you won't use your talent for him, then he's going to take it away. And that, that sounds good. It kind of preaches pretty well and it has a ring of truth to it. And you, you might even compare that lesson to Romans chapter 12 that speaks of the spiritual gifts in the church that we're, we're to use. But that traditional interpretation hits a wall when you get to verse 30. It doesn't work. Verse 30, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've actually heard a preacher preach through this passage and skip verse 30 because it messes up the whole traditional interpretation. Honestly, I think sometimes we get interpretations off Wikipedia instead of just studying the text. And so the, the story, it has a ring of reality to it. An unfaithful servant is stripped of his duties. It basically looks like that he's been fired. That makes sense in the business world. But all of a sudden, this takes a much more serious twist. This goes from being a business meeting to a, a heavenly, eternal meeting. The unfaithful servant isn't just fired. He's judged eternally. He's judged. He's cast into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is that? What is that speaking of? Well, I think the best way to answer that question is just to find out what other times Jesus uses the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth. And with one exception, every time Jesus uses it, it's right here in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's find out what he's referring to. Turn with me backwards to Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew 8, we have the story of a centurion, a Gentile, coming to Jesus in humility and in faith and asking for the healing of one of his servants. The centurion believes so much in the power of Jesus that he says to Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. You just say the word and I know that he'll be healed. Chapter 8, verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say the one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. And so now Jesus comments on this man's faith, this Gentile's faith in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you with no one in Israel have I found such faith. In other words, lots of Gentiles are about to be invited to the kingdom. So he gives a, a, a contrast. He speaks now of the, the sons of the kingdom. And th this would be ethnic Jews who will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said, I have found no one in Israel of such faith. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Those are the Gentiles coming to recline in the kingdom. And then verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, ethnic Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
What is the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth? All we know from this text is that it's some place outside of the kingdom of God. Turn to Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus has just told the parable of the weeds and is explaining it now to his disciples. And we'll be right near the end of the chapter. That at the end of the age, the weeds, that is the unbelievers, will be gathered for judgment. And guess where they're going? Chapter 13, verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we know that the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth is someplace outside the kingdom called a fiery furnace. Jesus contrasts the unbelievers with the righteous, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. In verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he warns them, he who has ears, let him hear. So where are they? Where are the believers? In the kingdom, shining like the sun. Same chapter. Jesus tells the parable of the net, beginning in verse 47, in which the kingdom is like a net thrown into the sea, which catches good fish and bad fish, and they're going to be separated where do the bad fish go? Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So now we know that it's a place outside the kingdom. It's a place of the fiery furnace where all the unbelievers go. Now I won't have you look at all the others, but suffice to say, Matthew 22 verse 13 those who have not received the righteousness of Christ, they're pictured as a, the righteousness pictured as a wedding garment. They're bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in Matthew 24, Jesus tells the parable of the wise and the wicked servants and the wicked servant who acts with evil intentions while his master is gone. And when the master returns, Matthew 24, 51, he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I think it's safe to say that in our parable, this third servant isn't just being fired. That there's something much more eternal happening here. There's a judgment happening. And this is an obvious picture of the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, in our parable, who is the master? Very clearly, this is Christ. He's speaking of himself. He is the judge. He is the master who's going to return. He is the property owner who's gone on the long journey and left behind those who say that they are his servants. So what are the qualities of the true servants? Well, they could have taken the money to the bank, like the, the master said to the third servant, but they went way above and beyond that bare minimum they did far more with the talents that they received than just the minimum. And the neat thing about those servants is you, you don't get a sense of fear of the master. You get a sense of love for the master, a sense of delight in serving him. They're going above and beyond and they're expecting a commendation, a reward. It's like they're living for that moment when the master returns and says, well done. And so they do receive that. Now, what are the qualities of the unfaithful servant? Well, he's a fraud. He's a fake. In, in Matthew 24, as we saw earlier, he's a hypocrite, meaning he's a false follower of the master. He has scorn and contempt for the master. He barely conceals his contempt, but it finally comes out during that judgment time. He thinks that he's righteous. He thinks that he's smart. 
And he thinks he's really, frankly, smarter than the master. Now, what is the lesson here? Well, first of all, the lesson is not if you use the talents that God gives you, the abilities you have, you will earn a place in the kingdom. But if you won't, you forfeit the place in the kingdom. That's clearly not the case. The lesson is not whatever talents that the Lord gives you are to be used for him. But if you won't use your talent, he'll take the talents away. That's actually works-based salvation. We're not going to go there. That's definitely not the lesson. So this parable makes a, a clear distinction between the believer in Christ and the unbeliever. It, totally different categories. There, there is an element here of using your talents for the Lord. We understand that. You, you have to connect this, though, to the quality of a true believer in Christ. So here's the point of the parable. A true believer in Christ demonstrates his salvation by waiting for his return with kingdom work. Let me repeat that for you. A true believer in Christ demonstrates salvation by waiting for his return with kingdom work. And it's out of love and out of, out of desire for the master. In fact, this is set in a, a, a little triplet here of parables meant to go together. And they all concern the kingdom and the return of Christ. The first one, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36. You don't have to turn to it. This is the parable of the wise and the wicked servants. And the lesson is, watch for the coming of Christ with anticipation. That, that's the lesson there. The second one, immediately following in chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins, the lesson there is, watch for the coming of Christ with endurance, with, with patience. And then here in our parable, the parable of the talents, the lesson is, watch for the coming of Christ with service, while diligently serving him. So we're to patiently anticipate the return of Christ by serving. That's what you get when you put those three parables together. So what does the, the flower of God, which is in full color and life, a blossoming flower filled with vibrant hues and tones and shades, what, what does that look like? Well, I, I, I want to unpack two major features that have been brought out by this parable, and we'll just call these features anticipation and occupation. Anticipation is obvious. Occupation is what we're occupying ourselves with. So let's talk about anticipation, first of all. I think we honestly live in a culture that makes it more difficult to anticipate the return of Christ than ever before. We, we are so filled with distractions. We are so filled with other things that anticipating the setting up of the kingdom of God on earth is very difficult for us. We have so much to live for here just from a human standpoint and it creates a tension between all the things I want here and the true kingdom anticipation that we're to have. A book that deeply impacted me as a child was the story of a Bulgarian pastor during the Soviet era, uh, right post-World War II in that time period. And he was arrested and he was imprisoned ultimately for about 13 and a half years. And during that time, he was tortured, he was beaten, he was starved, he was frozen. They, they would take him out and put him on frozen ice until he was just barely alive and then come and thaw him out again. And when he was better, they would go back and do it again. They made him stand up against the wall with his nose against the wall for 14 days straight and would, would beat him mercilessly if he fell to the ground. And they did this to him over and over again. And, and one chapter I'll never forget as long as I live all of a sudden, he was hauled out of his cell. He was taken to the end of a concrete hallway, and one of the guards rammed the muzzle of a pistol into the back of his head and said, you have five seconds 
to deny Christ. Four, three, two. The man wrote that he had, at that moment, incredible, glorious anticipation, and he couldn't wait for the countdown to happen. But when the guard got down to one, and he hadn't denied Christ, the guard just hit him over the head with a pistol, and the pastor wrote that as he was losing consciousness, he was cognizant of feeling crushing disappointment because he had zero to live for on this earth, and so his anticipation of seeing Christ was, was perfect. It was as good as it could be because he, he had nothing else to live for. But we have everything to live for here. We have so many distractions, so many things. We have so much to live for that truly anticipating the return of Christ, anticipating that moment when we first see him, is very difficult to cultivate. So what does scripture tell us to do? Well, I want to take a lesson from the great saints of the Old Testament. Turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, very familiar passage to us, sometimes called the Hall of Faith. And I want to read the first 12 verses to you to set up what the writer is trying to teach. Hebrews 11, I'm just going to read the first 12 verses briefly. That will give us our context. Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, what do we learn from these great saints about anticipation? Well, first of all, they didn't treat this world as their home. They didn't treat this world as their home. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They, put it this way, they're, they're strangers, they're exiles, they're not settled in. They may enjoy the good things of the world, but they hold them pretty lightly. So they didn't treat this world as their home. The second thing we learn is that they were seeking their home. They were seeking their home. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
So they knew that the world in its current state, this isn't their real home, but they did long for their real home. I mean, when we think of home, you you have all these words and I have all these words, stability and health and joy and safety and comfort and fellowship and love. That's what home is. Scripture speaks of home 134 times, but that doesn't include the references to house which in the Bible refers to your family, to your your household, to your home, to your inheritance. That's referred to 2,000 times in Scripture. It's a huge concept in our Bible. The Apostle Paul famously said that he desired to be at home with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5, he wants to be at home. And to seek here in verse 14, it has the idea of wishing for something, longing for something. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to get to talk to terminally ill, mature Christians. Because you can't wipe the grin off their face. Once they have accepted the fact, okay, treatment is done, it, nothing's going to keep me here anymore, it, with mature believers who have studied their Bible and who have cultivated a sense of home, there is just nothing but joy. Absolute joy. I, I'll never forget a conversation I had with, with Nancy Moore. And we just talked about heaven and she asked questions and I tried and we just had this discussion and she was just beaming and she said, I can hardly wait. And I joked with her, it's, it's, it's like going to Disneyland and she couldn't open her eyes and she said, much better, much better. <laughs> because that joy was there, that anticipation. So they didn't treat this world as their home, they were seeking their home. But the third thing we learned is they were seeking their heavenly home. It wasn't just a a shot in the dark. They knew what they were looking for. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Don't jump to just making that metaphorical or somehow symbolic. Reading the whole of Scripture reveals the fact that God's overarching plan is not a cloudy heaven where everybody sits around playing harps. That's not what heaven is. His plan is a new earth with countries and with cities and with rivers and streams and seas and one great tremendous city, in particular, New Jerusalem. In other words, all the good things that we enjoy now in shadow form, in imperfect form here on earth, are simply imperfect, tiny models of the real thing that we'll enjoy in the new earth when we await our place with Christ. Look at the verbs of longing. I love these. Verse 13, concerning their future home, they have seen them. They have seen their future home. By faith, we're so eager to see the coming of God's kingdom that it says that they can see it as it were. Have you ever thought about a food so good that you think, I can almost taste it? You can can imagine it? Well, they're looking at their home as so glorious that they they could see it in their mind's eye. And this is very interesting because they had much less revelation about their heavenly home than we have. And yet they were so focused on this. Verbs of longing, seen them. Verse 13, and greeted them from afar, these things that are promised. This is the idea of seeing their new home by faith and smiling and waving and going, hey, I'm coming, I'll be there as soon as I can. What a tremendous picture. It's like you're saying hello to a home that you haven't seen yet. Look at this verb, verse 16. They desire a better country. It means that they aspire to something. 
that that is their goal. That's what they're focused on. They know that this world is unsatisfying and temporary, so they aspire to their permanent home. That's anticipation. And that's what we ought to cultivate. I, one of my favorite topics to preach on is, is heaven. And I, I love speaking of New Jerusalem. I love looking at Revelation 21 and 22. And as a matter of fact, for our very last message in our Joyful Generosity campaign, I'm preaching on heaven. Because I think that puts what we're doing now in perspective concerning what's happening later. I'll take any chance I can to speak on heaven. And I don't care if it's, it's repetitive. I want to hear about it. I want to know about it. So we are to have anticipation. But does that mean that we just sit around longing for a better time? Well, ultimately, if you do that, then you're being unfaithful, right? So what else do we do? That's our anticipation. We also have our occupation. Our occupation. And that's really the whole point of the parable that we read tonight. And we could divide the, the idea of occupation into two parts. We'll divide this into maturity and mission. Maturity and mission, and we'll take a different text for each one of those. Turn with me just back a few pages to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 to look at maturity. Just two books back. Titus 2 is what I call the great preaching guide for the minister of the gospel. It tells the pastor what to teach the older men, what to teach the older women, what to teach the younger women, what to teach the younger men. And, and the basic message of Titus 2 is if you are in Christ, you ought to be behaving like it and doing what your master tells you. Kind of sounds familiar from our parable, doesn't it? Scripture is always consistent. And so Paul gives Titus a summary list of what a maturing believer looks like. And this summary is in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So what are we to do? He says, first, renounce ungodliness. It means disown it, repudiate it, stop it. Just, just decide, okay, this area of sanctification, I'm just going to master this. I'm done yelling. I'm done doing this. I'm done being up all night with anxiety. I'm just done with this. And so I'm going to make serious strides in my own sanctification. Renounce it. He says, renounce worldly passions. It's, it means to stop going after a thing just because you crave it. Passions is often translated in the Bible, lusts. It's the constant pursuit of whatever I want, which, by the way, causes chaos and pain in your life. And people say, well, this is a victimless sin. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. Your sin will always affect others every time. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. We renounce worldly passions. If you want to, here's a good test. If you are about to do something purely because you want to, think twice. Because probably there's an element of worldly passion to it. What else are we to do? He says, live self-controlled. This is the opposite of going after worldly passions. This is being intentional, doing everything you do on purpose, with a plan, because it fits some godly reason. And you say, well, what kind of godly reason could there be to, to watch Star Wars? Well, if you are honestly able to say, I'm going to take some time to recreate with my family, I'm going to use this as a family activity, or I'm going to let my brain decompress for a while so that I'm fresh for an activity that will be useful to the kingdom, great, that's fine, but just do it intentionally. Not just for no reason because I felt like it. I, I wonder, I, I don't know how anybody can live like this, but I wonder about those that eat dinner every night 
and just recreate all evening long, and that's all they do. What, what is that about? If you added up the hours that you do that, that could be as many hours as you actually work. There's nothing wrong with recreation, but are you doing it intentionally? Are you doing it on purpose? For me, my recreation generally happens with my family because I can double up. I can have a lot of fun and I can be with my wife. I can be with my kids, but I'm not just going to go out and spend a weekend doing something I want to do just because I want to do it. There's got to be a reason for it. So we we live self-controlled. What else are we to do? He says, live upright. It means be fair, be equitable, be just, be honest. We're to be fair. And then he says, live godly in this present age. A, A godly life, generally speaking, simply means doing what God wants you to do. Not getting complacent about this. There's no room for coasting. Can I make a confession to you? There is a bracelet that I despise. Can anybody guess? What would Jesus do? You want to know why I despise that bracelet? Because if you're wearing one, you're kind of covering it up right now. Because it implies that the point of Jesus was to just be a good guy to show us an example. The point of Jesus Christ was not just to be a good example, which he was, but the point of Jesus Christ was to die for our sins, not so we could say, what would Jesus do, but so we could say, what has Jesus commanded me to do? What would Jesus do sees him as my buddy that I'm trying to emulate? What would Jesus command me to do sees him as my master that I obey? You see the difference? I have seen unbelievers wearing WWJD uh, uh, bracelets, and it doesn't make any difference in their life because he's not their master. He's not their Lord. So here's the kicker. In this part of occupation that we're calling maturity, what's the context of all of these exhortations we just saw in verse 12? What's he really saying here? Look at verse 13. While we're doing all those things, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we we pursue, pursue maturity as part of our occupation. We're to do these things We're working while we wait for Christ. Well, there's a second part of occupation we'll call mission. Mission. And for this one, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, back on the other side of Hebrews. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. We're never called to just float through the Christian life. We're called to have a mission, and that mission changes over time. When you have small children at home, they ought to be your mission. That ought to be a glorious mission. Your husband ought to be your mission. If you're, if you're married, and this is so anti-our culture now, if you're married, your husband is your primary mission. They go all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3. That's why the woman was created in the first place. And the truly fulfilled woman will find her joy in that. I, I think that's virtually a lost art. The art of elevating your husband by honoring him and cherishing him and meeting his needs and bolstering him and encouraging him. That's, that's so lost in our culture today and, and, and we, get, we get arrows shot at us for even saying that out loud. Instead, marriage has most often become more of a partnership where two partners are helping each other achieve their individual life goals. I don't have individual goals. Sylvia doesn't have individual goals. We have goals together that we help one another with, but, but we're one flesh. But the context of 1 Peter 4 has to do more broadly with the church of Jesus Christ. That is always your mission in every era of your life, every time of your life. 
1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for 10 minutes, you've heard me preach on serving in the church. It's something we talk about as often as we can. We do that in our Grace Connect class. Um, I try to find a way to weave it into messages anytime I can. You know, let's talk about marriage. And by the way, are you serving in the church? Any, any way we can. And I won't stop until every member is in a vital relationship with the local church. That, we're not there yet. Honestly, we're, we're not there. We're not even close. In my final introductory message to the Pentateuch a few Sunday nights ago, I showed from Scripture that we are to make of prime importance the group identity of the church that that's important to us, that we put the good of the church ahead of our own individual consumerism preferences. And so why does Peter tell us in verses 10 and 11 to be faithful in our work in the church of Jesus Christ? Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. In other words, Christ could return any moment. Same motivation that we've been looking at. I challenged our members a a year ago to write their mission statements for their service to Christ in the church. I would reissue that challenge because Christ is coming. There's been 12 months since then and the clock is ticking. I pray that he would find us busy for his kingdom work. Let me give you a couple of ideas. Make a list of everything that you do in your life and cut out the two most idiotic ones. Just decide I'm done with that. Scratch something off your list. Sometimes young men in the ministry say, how do, you, how do you manage your time? What do you do? And, and I always tell them the same thing. That's easy. And I tell young families this too. Get a calendar, a good old-fashioned paper calendar, and make sure it's blank. Put all the most important things in first. Put your time with your family, time with your children. Put your service to the church, your attendance at church. I'm amazed at how many people can work 70 hours a week but can't make it to a Sunday evening service. So put all the most important things in first, then put the other stuff in. It's really that simple. I mean, we have 70, maybe 80 years, and that's going by fast. It goes by quickly. How about this one? After you've cut two or three idiotic things, notice I went up to three now, three idiotic things out of your life, read 12 books this year to learn of our Savior more. I've said this before, but growing and maturing Christians are reading Christians. We have our precious little book cart, Grace Equip Bookstore, Grace Equip Book Cart. And we're grateful to Russell and Kelsey, but my dream is to see that thing be a full-blown bookstore. Because maturing Christians read, and, and we want to grow and learn. How about this? Determined to be a massive blessing to one other person or one other ministry. Pick somebody or pick a ministry and say, I'm going to make an absolute difference in in that ministry or that person's life this year. Or how about this one? Quit coasting with your kids or with your husband. Now, your coasting might be at a really high level. You might be doing wonderful things. You might be a great mom, a a great wife. But how about elevate it one more step this year? Just pick one more thing to do that's just a little bit different. Have you ever seen a rainbow rose before? Anybody know where the rainbow rose is? Don't say it if you know. 
A rainbow rose is very interesting because it, it takes a little help. It's a rose where you've taken the, the stem and you've cut it multiple times and you spread the little stems out there and then you, you put it in food coloring. And the rose petals begin to take on whatever color that, the, that, that part of the stem is in. And so you have this rainbow of colors begin to appear in uh, the, the rose petals. It, it looked so fascinating. I almost tried it. I didn't have time to, but I wanted to. Well, we're very much ought to be like that rainbow rose. We've been cut to the heart by the work of Christ on our behalf. He suffered and he died on your behalf. He expects you to be crucified with Christ. He expects you to have died with him, to have lost your life in him. And so take the cut stems of your heart and soak them in the word of God. Soak them in the life of the church. Soak them in obedience, in true maturity, which you seek after. Have the courage to go to your own children and say, how can I be a better mom? Have the courage to go to your husband and say, how can I be a better wife? Go, have the courage to go to somebody that you're in ministry with and say, how can I help elevate this to the next level? How can I serve Christ even more? Most importantly, have the courage to go to, to the Lord in prayer and say, how can I elevate my service for you? What can I get rid of in order to serve you? I think if you knew without a doubt that Christ was returning in 24 hours, that your priorities would pretty instantly change, wouldn't it? So be that rainbow rose and, and watch as the beauty of the life that you're offering to the Lord begins to fill with vibrant, vibrant color. Because then you're blossoming. You're not a pale, lifeless, gray flower. You have all the color that Christ intended you to have. And then all of a sudden, when you are serving faithfully and waiting on the Lord, He comes. That's a good thing to look forward to. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for these precious ladies. And I, I know to a great degree that I am speaking truths that they already believe. And that's a great encouragement to my heart. Lord, I know that most of them are, are in a point in their walk with the Lord that they're really doing little adjustments and sharpening and honing and wanting to be more and more like Christ, they are, in many, most cases, much more like the older Apostle Peter than the younger Apostle Peter, who often um, messed up, yet had a good heart. And so, Lord, I pray for these precious women. I pray that they would truly have hearts of anticipation, that they would read their Bibles and, and find any excuse to look forward to the coming kingdom. I pray that they're looking forward to the coming kingdom, to the return of Christ, to meeting Jesus face to face would so encourage their hearts and so bolster their spirits that they would then be um, determined to be about the occupation of being mature and having a mission on this earth, Lord. Help all of us not to waste a single moment, but to count the cost, to redeem the time, to use our time wisely, Lord, for you and to do more than we thought we ever could. I pray for those who think that they may be doing enough for Christ, that you could help them to do more. I pray for those that are not doing much for Christ at all, that they would be um, excited and overjoyed to use their time to anticipate your coming by being occupied about kingdom things. Lord, I ask your blessing on these precious ladies. I ask your, your blessing on their lives, on their marriages, on their relationships, on everything that they do, such that they could be wonderful servants that are filled with the color of the kingdom. And we pray these things for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.